Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, author and political commentator Lawrence O'Donnell was a teenager in 1968. He recalls the time in some detail. He was coming of age as someone drawn to politics and directly affected by the Vietnam War. It was personal. I was in high school in 1968, and I never heard my brothers and their college-age friends talk about career planning. They only talked about how to deal with the draft and Vietnam. There was no long-term planning, no career hopes and dreams. Life was a short-term game for many young men in 1968. It was as if they were prisoners who would only begin to think about life on the outside when they got outside. O'Donnell's cousin, John, was killed in Vietnam that September. Historians look back on 1968 as one of the most pivotal years in modern United States history. Lawrence O'Donnell hosts MSNBC's The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell. He found numerous parallels between 1968 and 2016 in his new book, Playing with Fire, the 1968 election and the transformation of American politics. He spoke at Seattle University's Campion Ballroom on November 14th. Town Hall Seattle presented the event as part of their civics series. My name is Edward Wilcher. I am the curator of lectures at Town Hall Seattle. And on behalf of Town Hall, our partners at the Elliott Bay Book Company, who are set up in the corner right over there, and our host, Seattle University, I am so happy to welcome you to tonight's appearance with Lawrence O'Donnell. Lawrence O'Donnell is the host of The Last Word on MSNBC. He's the Emmy Award-winning executive producer and writer for the NBC television series The West Wing and creator of the series Mr. Sterling. O'Donnell has served as senior advisor to Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the chief of staff to the Senate uh, Committee on the Environment and Public Works and the Senate Finance Committee. He's the author of Deadly Force in 1983. We were just reflecting on his last book tour, which was for that book back in 1983. Uh, so we're happy that he's writing a new one to bring him out to Seattle. Uh, and that, that book was adapted into a film in 1986. His writing has appeared in many outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, Boston Magazine, and many others. But he's here tonight to discuss his new work, Playing with Fire, the 1968 election and the transformation of American politics, the subject of tonight's talk. Please join me in giving a big town hall welcome to Lawrence O'Donnell. Thank you very much. Thank you. I, I know, uh, I think I know how exciting this feels. <laughs> this is the closest you're ever going to get to Rachel Maddow. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm, uh, I'm the Joe Biden of MSNBC. <laughs> I get it, but thank you. Uh, you know, the favorite, uh, my favorite um, minutes of the day uh, begin when Rachel says, good evening, Lawrence. And, uh, you know, each one of the control rooms now budgets 
uh, her control room, my control room, they budget a minute for that, and they used to budget nothing for it. Uh, it was supposed to be good evening and, you know, get on. And, uh, and so it just became this thing, you know, it just became this late night phone call with my favorite, and I don't want her to hang up, and I'm just trying to, you can see me there just trying to desperately keep her on the phone, and she's got to go because she's got a life, and, and she goes, and then, I'm, then I have to do it. Um, I want to begin with something I read today in my coffee shop in the Seattle Weekly. Deep nationwide social divisions and a left-center split in the Democratic Party clears a path to victory for a chronically untrustworthy Republican. Lawrence O'Donnell explores not only what happened the first time, but what it all led to over the subsequent half century in his book, Playing With Fire. Uh, I have to thank the Seattle Weekly for that first sentence because I, I think it captures uh, perfectly uh, the, the basic story of this book, this country uh, with deep nationwide social divisions, a left-center split in the Democratic Party, and then that clearing the path uh, for Richard Nixon. We, we saw in 1968 the first setting in cement of what has become our politics, and the cement has only hardened every year since then. We saw in 1968 uh, the most peculiar decision ever made in presidential politics. If you just, just leave out the reality TV star deciding to run for president. Uh, <laughs> so prior to last year, uh, the, the most peculiar choice was the day that a poet decided to run for president. A poet decided to run for president in 1968 and attempted to ennoble our politics, but he did not know that he was playing with fire. And he did not know how violent the world would become in our politics because of, and in reaction to, to a great extent, the ignition that he, that he set when he decided to run against the incumbent president of his own party. Eugene McCarthy, Senator Eugene McCarthy, would spend time in his Senate hideaway office, which is different from his main office. They have these little hideaways that are off the uh, Senate floor where they can spend some time between votes. And Gene would be in that hideaway office either writing or reading poetry. And he got a reputation uh, uh, among senators for that, and it wasn't a good one. Uh, that was not what they thought they came here to do. And, and he couldn't have shocked his colleagues more by being the one who decided to run against Lyndon Johnson as an anti-war candidate. Uh, Bobby Kennedy had thought about it. Bobby Kennedy was the person who the Dump Johnson movement really wanted. He thought about it. He decided not to. He thought about it again. He decided not to. Uh, then Gene McCarthy did it. And, <clears throat> and that created a sequence of events 
that completely changed the course of our political history. Gene McCarthy went to New Hampshire and like Bernie Sanders last time in New Hampshire, completely upset the Democratic establishment. What we saw last year was Bernie Sanders simply using that insurgency lane on the left of the Democratic Party that was created by Gene McCarthy. And uh, Bernie was a 27-year-old guy living in Vermont watching Gene McCarthy do that. Uh, and I think he knew last year whose footsteps he was following in. On the Republican side, the campaign year began with a couple of the front runners uh, who were liberal Republicans. George Romney was a genuine liberal Republican and possibly the most liberal Republican on civil rights. Nelson Rockefeller, governor of New York, a liberal Republican, also liberal on civil rights, uh, was maneuvering and, and hesitating and maneuvering at the same time. Uh, but those were the days when we had something called a liberal Republican. Uh, we also had conservative Democrats then. We had segregationist Democrats in the 1960s. In, in 1968, if, if you said you were a Republican, I wouldn't know if you were a liberal or a Democrat, a liberal or a conservative. If you said you were a Democrat, I wouldn't know if you're liberal or, or not. I would not know. I wouldn't know if you were anti-war. I wouldn't know if you were pro-war. Today, when people hear the word Republican, they think they know everything about you. And when they hear the word Democrat, they think they know everything about you. And unfortunately, they know more about you than that word used to reveal. Because what happened in 1968 was uh, the Republican Party moved into a position, a very conscious decision of moving out the liberals. And Mayor John Lindsay, the Republican mayor of New York City, was literally the last liberal standing on a Republican convention stage in 1968, having, having been given the horrible and humiliating duty of seconding, seconding the nomination for the vice presidency for Spiro Agnew. <laughs> that was the moment liberalism died in the Republican Party. That, that was the death of it. And so today, the shape of our politics is something uh, that was first designed in 1968, and very deliberately designed. Uh, George Wallace, the segregationist governor of Alabama, was running as an independent. And he, uh, he was siphoning votes away from Richard Nixon. Uh, and Wallace, in 67, as he was gearing up, uh, said to reporters, I don't talk about segregation anymore. I talk about law and order. And Nixon heard that law and order, and Nixon started using law and order. And every Republican nominee since then has been, has claimed to be the law and order candidate. And uh, George Wallace's campaign manager told me last year that when he was listening to Donald Trump campaign for president, he was listening to George Wallace. It was all the same. It was, it was aimed at the same voter. It had exactly the same intellectual content, exactly. <laughs> It had the same style, and it had a unique feature that we had only seen in Wallace, and that was uh, Wallace's understanding that the protesters in his audience were a gift to him because it enabled him to have a moment where he could show 
his crowd just how tough he was. And so Wallace would fight back at the long-haired or bearded protesters who would stand up in his audience, and he would call them hippies and commies and pinkos and all sorts of names, and yell right back at them. And you cut to 2016, and Donald Trump is standing up there and saying, I want to punch him in the face. And his crowd loved it. Because what Donald Trump was saying to them was, I hate the same people you hate, and if I'm president, every one of their days is going to be a difficult day with me as president. That was the promise in the I want to punch him in the face. And George Wallace was the only previous candidate who understood that kind of communication. The big question of the of the day, every day now, and every hour almost of cable news is, was there collusion? Was there collusion? The answer is absolutely yes, beyond a reasonable doubt, in 1968. <laughs> and we have all of the documentation we could ever have dreamed of on this. Uh, LBJ figured it out about two weeks before the election. The CIA came to him showed him information that they had. The FBI came and showed him wiretaps that they had, surveillance reports that they had. And it was very well documented that Richard Nixon was colluding with the South Vietnamese government through the South Vietnamese embassy in Washington and through a, a I was going to say middle man, but it was a middle woman, Anna Chenault, and uh, communicating with them to say, do not do not allow any progress toward peace. Do not allow any progress toward peace talks because what Richard Nixon needed was for the Vietnam War to be going very badly on election day. That's what he believed he needed to win. And so he did very blatantly uh, collude with the South Vietnamese government. And the South Vietnamese government had made an agreement with Lyndon Johnson a secret agreement to go to Paris to peace talks. They said they could be there in three days. And as soon as they made that agreement, Richard Nixon knew about it. He communicated to the South Vietnamese, hang on. It's right in Bob Haldeman's notes about this, which were just discovered last year, uh, where Bob Haldeman uh, quotes Nixon as, as telling him to pass on the message to the South Vietnamese to hang on, hang on. And Nixon saying uh, things like, uh, how can I throw a monkey wrench into this deal? And they found the monkey wrench. And the South Vietnamese uh, changed their minds, told President Johnson they will not go to Paris. And so Johnson was then humiliated because he had announced that the South Vietnamese would come to Paris. Uh, and so it looked as though things were going as bad as ever on election day. And Richard Nixon squeaked out the victory uh, with less than 1% of the vote. And I just want to uh, read you a passage uh, about this uh, because it talks about something that, um, so something I, I call the presidential decision. Uh, and that is to say that it's the thing you don't want to have to make. Uh, presidential decisions are always the most difficult decisions. They always include elements that we don't include when we're thinking about them uh, or debating them at the dinner table. Uh, so I'm going to just take you through some of this, uh, of what Lyndon Johnson faced literally in the last week of the election when he, when he had all this information in front of him. He called up uh, Senator Dirksen, Republican senator he trusted, and told him what he had. 
he told him he had CIA information, he had FBI surveillance, he had wiretaps, told him everything he had, and he said what he saw Nixon doing was treason. That was the word he used uh, to Dirksen when he told him about it, because he, what he was hoping was that Dirksen would tell Nixon, and then Nixon would back off and stop interfering, and that didn't work. And so Johnson didn't know what to do next. The president's only option, with two days left before the election, was to go through with the threat he delivered to Dirksen and leak this bombshell story to the press and create those headlines he described to Dirksen about a presidential candidate betraying his country and causing more American casualties in Vietnam. That wouldn't be an easy, as easy for, for Johnson as Johnson made it sound to Dirksen. National Security Advisor Walt Rostow urged Johnson to expose the whole story and destroy Nixon. Then the president conferred with Secretary of State Dean Rusk and Secretary of Defense Clark Clifford. They pointed out that making this story public would expose some highly sensitive American intelligence gathering techniques in Washington and Saigon. They were very worried about having to reveal that the best evidence was picked up on a wiretap of an embassy in Washington. They had important wiretaps at embassies all over town that would be compromised. Johnson worried that the story might eventually leak sometime in the future, and what would people say about, quote, our knowing about it and our being charged with hushing it or something? I don't believe that would bother me, said Clark Clifford. Rusk agreed. The impeachment of a newly elected president did not fit their definition of good for the country. The problem was, if Nixon was elected, this information could lead to impeachment. Impeachment of a president under any circumstances was inconceivable to them. Impeachment was something that had happened once, a hundred years ago, for minor reasons that the Senate dismissed when they heard the impeachment case against President Andrew Johnson in 1868. That impeachment was considered a historical oddity that occurred in the turbulence of the post-Civil War era. The duties and burdens of powers of, of the presidency had grown exponentially since then. So had the awe for the office. In the nuclear age, the awe for the office and the man continued to increase to the point where the job title had changed to leader of the free world, a description that has never been true and never been doubted by voters, the press, or people working in the White House. By 1968, impeaching the leader of the free world for anything was unthinkable, especially to wise men like Clark Clifford and Dean Rusk. They both knew that if LBJ revealed what Nixon had done and Nixon got elected anyway, impeachment would become a real option. And in their minds, that would not be good for the country. Having a president who publicly got away with what voters would see as treason would not be good for the country either. Nixon knew from personal experience that inside the White House, there was no difference between what was good for the country and what was good for the presidency. Nixon could easily guess what Clark Clifford and Dean Rusk would advise the president to do about the treason he described to them. One definition of the perfect crime is a crime the authorities are afraid to prosecute. 
Richard Nixon knew he had committed the worst crime in American political history, a crime that arguably cost more than 20,000 American soldiers their lives by extending the war, and he also knew it was the perfect crime. Richard Nixon knew what Lyndon Johnson, Clark Clifford, and Dean Rusk would decide to do when faced with no good choice. Nothing for the good of the country. That is the, the era that we were living in. Uh, and then, of course, the man who they chose not to expose uh, was ultimately exposed for other things, and we saw what impeachment could do. And so that changed the nature of this kind of story uh, and going forward from there. This book is uh, Something of an eyewitness account. I was a kid in high school watching the coverage of this on TV uh, and living through the tensions that the country was living through at the time. And those tensions visited everyone. There was no way to escape the pressure of Vietnam. And that is because every 18-year-old man had a draft card in his pocket or was already in the military. And that draft card could be the ticket to Vietnam, could be the ticket to death in the jungles of Vietnam. For a war that by 1968 was very clearly unwinnable to even kids in high school. In 1968, in high school, I was smarter than the Secretary of Defense and the President combined. <laughs> and so were half of the kids in high school in America not to mention the college kids. And it was in that sense an enviable time when you could feel so smart. We could see the hopelessness of this. LBJ as president, I now know, could feel the hopelessness of it, but he could not allow himself to be guided by the hopelessness of it because what the only guide he had was his determination not to be the first president to lose a war. And when Richard Nixon took Lyndon Johnson's place, Richard Nixon, during the campaign, privately, uh, made it very clear that he didn't believe we could win the war in Vietnam. But once he was president, he was caught by the same bug that destroyed LBJ, and that was he couldn't be the first president to lose a war. And so he continued it. Uh, the, the world we were living in then, our political world, was actually a much more emotional political world, and the emotions were very raw. We were living in what was still just the shadow of the JFK assassination. The candidate who everyone had their eyes on and everyone was trying to figure out what he was going to do was Bobby Kennedy. Was he going to run? Was he not going to run? Gene McCarthy did not want to run. He wanted Bobby Kennedy to run. Uh, when, when Allard Lowenstein was going around trying to find someone to run as the Dump Johnson candidate, he went to Bobby. Bobby thought about it, said no. Uh, then he moved on to other candidates and possible candidates. They would all say no. He went to Gene McCarthy. Gene McCarthy said, no, you should ask Bobby. And Lowenstein said, well, Bobby said no. He said, well, you should ask George McGovern. So he went to George McGovern. McGovern said, you should ask Gene McCarthy. And this went around like this. And, and they just couldn't find the candidate. Uh, and, and, and everyone was waiting to see what Bobby would do. And I just want to read you a passage of 
what it meant and the, and the uniqueness of this candidacy, the, the Bobby Kennedy candidacy as a potential candidacy, and the magic that was in it, and that was the thing that every other candidate feared. Richard Nixon feared Bobby Kennedy uh, more than any other possible candidate. Lyndon Johnson feared Bobby Kennedy more than any other possible candidate. And of course, it is all because of the shadow of Bobby Kennedy's assassinated brother. In the year before 1968, Bobby would be making speeches around the country and everywhere he went, he got the same chant everywhere he went from the audience, run, Bobby, run, run, Bobby, run. It just never stopped. Underlying Bobby's speeches was a force we had never seen before in American politics, something we've never seen since, something Shakespearean. When Bobby stepped up to a microphone, no matter how sunny the day, no matter how wide his smile, he was always framed in tragedy, the personal and national tragedy of the assassination of his older brother, the President of the United States, on November 22, 1963, in Dallas. Bobby's audiences knew his pain because they all felt their own version of that pain on that horrendous day in 1963 that shook the country to the core. In the Kennedys' hometown of Boston, it felt as if the world stopped. I was in St. Brendan's Elementary School in Boston when the nuns got the news that the president had been killed, the first Catholic president, something the older nuns never expected to see. Now they had outlived the 46-year-old Irish Catholic boy who had made them so proud. The Sisters of St. Joseph were the strongest women I knew, but this was too much for them to bear. They simply couldn't carry on. They closed the school early and sent us home. We had never seen them cry before. We were all crying when the nuns got us into our lines to march us out to the sidewalk. Everyone we saw was crying. Every driver stopped at every traffic light. Men carrying tool bags were crying. Men carrying briefcases were crying. Boston cops were crying. Subway cars were filled with people crying who had left work early to go home and cry with their families and to watch the Kennedy family ordeal unfold on TV. We watched Bobby holding his brother's widow's hand that night when she arrived back in Washington still wearing her pink bloodstained clothes. We watched him holding her hand at Arlington National Cemetery. Nothing could ever happen in this world to make us forget those images which were only four years old in 1967 when Bobby's audiences started chanting, run, Bobby, run. The, the country that we were living in then was experiencing something it had never experienced before, which was a genuine and powerful anti-war movement. We had never seen that before in the face of any of the American wars. And it was affecting, of course, mostly the people who were exposed to the draft. It was a, a deeply personal experience for everyone. If it wasn't you, in my case, for example, it was your older brother, uh, it, or older brothers in my case, or it was your boyfriend, or it was your grandson, or it was your cousin. And so uh, this, is, this is a passage I, I just want to bring you about, about how personal we live, how personal this history is as I present it here, and, and how immediate uh, the sensation of both connection to and alienation from this war-making government was then. Bobby did not yet realize that the 1968 presidential election would be about nothing less than life and death. 
In the nuclear age, all presidential elections were, by implication at least, about life and death because the commander-in-chief had the power to start World War III in minutes by launching nuclear missiles. But the 1968 election was going to be about the life and death of people we knew. In the spring of 1968, my cousin John T. Corley Jr. graduated from West Point, then visited us in Boston before he shipped out to Vietnam. Johnny was the tallest among us, six feet four inches, a West Point football star. We worried that he would be an easy target in Vietnam. Johnny wasn't worried. He grew up on army bases with his, with his father, a general, and was trained for combat and eager to try to rival his father's World War II and Korean War records, which filled their home with 26 awards and combat decorations, including a record-setting eight silver stars. My oldest brother, Michael, showed Johnny his draft notice, which had just arrived in the mail. Michael was worried. He didn't want to go to Vietnam. No one we knew wanted to go except Johnny. He wanted a career in the military like his father, and combat was part of that. Johnny advised Michael that the best way to avoid Vietnam might be to voluntarily enlist before being drafted, because then he might get a better choice of assignments. Getting drafted was the fastest route to Vietnam. Michael took Johnny's advice, enlisted, got easy assignments in the Army, and never left the United States. Johnny arrived in Vietnam on May 9, 1968. Over the course of that summer, his letters to Michael began to question the wisdom of the mission in Vietnam. Johnny earned a silver star in four months on September 8, 1968, the day he was killed in action. His, his funeral was the first military funeral I attended. Tragedy has many faces, but none quite like a general crying, saluting his son's coffin. It was just another day in the life of America in 1968. The presidential election could end all that if Bobby ran on ending the war in Vietnam and won as anti-war Democrats were assuring him he could. I was in high school in 1968, and I never heard my brothers and their college-age friends talk about career planning. They only talked about how to deal with the draft and Vietnam. There was no long-term planning, no career hopes and dreams. Life was a short-term game for many young men in 1968. It was as if they were prisoners who would only begin to think about life on the outside when they got outside. Their prison was in their pocket, the draft registration card, that controlled their lives and blocked their hopes and dreams. The presidential election could end all that. The presidential election was a matter of life and death for real people we all knew. That meant that this time, running for president didn't have to be about ego. It meant that running for president couldn't be simply a matter of political calculation. It meant that it wasn't just about what was best for Bobby's future in politics. It was about life and death. The death Bobby thought about was his own. He worried that announcing his candidacy might tempt an assassin. He knew assassination was driven more by madness than logic, and maybe getting the second Kennedy on his way to the presidency would capture an assassin's twisted imagination. He was the only potential candidate who had to worry about a copycat assassin going for another Kennedy. And so Bobby's thinking about running was muddled and slow. He was leaning against running most of the time. 
As he thought about it, Bobby, who had been the manager of his brother's winning presidential campaign, could see every detail of what could go wrong with his own, but he could not yet see what the election was going to be about, life and death. And so Bobby held history in his hands for so long that someone who could see what the election was going to be about, be about decided he couldn't wait any longer and grabbed history out of Bobby's hands, someone no one expected to seize the moment until he did. And that, of course, was Gene McCarthy. And I want to go to your questions uh, right after I give you this other passage of the book. Uh, it comes toward the end of the book, but um, it doesn't give away the ending. Don't. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that page. Um, it's, a, it's more of an assessment of, of what the McCarthy candidacy meant uh, and what every, the, what the ultimate effects of the 1968 campaign were. And there are more what ifs about this campaign than I think uh, any you could think of. Uh, from what if Bobby Kennedy had left the stage the way he was supposed to on the other side of the stage instead of in the direction of Sirhan, which was a complete last minute decision that they made to do it that way. Uh, th there's an endless stream of what ifs. The biggest what if of all is what if Eugene McCarthy had not run? If Gene McCarthy hadn't run, Bobby Kennedy would not have run and would not have been assassinated on the night of the California primary. President Johnson would have run for re-election. Election night would have come down to Johnson versus Nixon. No matter what the outcome, Bobby Kennedy surely would have run for president as the anti-war candidate in 1972. And then, but Gene McCarthy did run. He made the bravest decision of any candidate of, of, in 1968, a decision that changed his party, changed the campaign, changed the anti-war movement into an important faction of the Democratic Party and changed the course of history. The most important thing Gene McCarthy did in 1968 was save lives. We have no idea when the Vietnam War would have ended if Gene McCarthy hadn't made ending the war a presidential campaign issue in 1968. The war ended seven years after McCarthy ran. If the first anti-war presidential candidate did not run until 1972, would the war have ended seven years later in 1979? We don't know. The peace movement won. The peace movement drove U.S. forces out of Vietnam, not the North Vietnamese Army. American politics responds slowly to protest, so it took several years for the peace movement to win. Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger complained for the rest of their lives that they were not able to achieve peace with honor in Vietnam because congressional support for the war kept dropping. This is a complaint about democracy. More and more members of Congress turned against the war because the peace movement, their voters, forced them to turn against the war. The Nixon-Ford administration would not have declared an end to the war in 1975 if the peace move movement hadn't forced them to. The last man to die for a mistake would not have been killed in Vietnam on April 29, 1975. Would that man have been killed in 1976? In 77, 
78? 79? How many more would have died? The millions of men and women who were active in the peace movement saved lives by forcing the war to end sooner than it would have if they hadn't taken to the streets in protest, something most of them had never done before for anything. Martin Luther King Jr. saved lives by raising his singular voice against the war. Bobby Kennedy saved lives by adding his anti-war voice to the growing chorus when it was still a politically risky choice. Al Lowenstein, Tom Hayden, John Kerry, and other leaders of the anti-war movement saved lives. Jean's wife, Abigail McCarthy, and their daughter, Mary, saved lives. There are thousands of Americans who owe their lives to people who forced the United States to get out of Vietnam on April 30th, 1975. I received a draft notice in December 1972. I was in college. Two weeks later, I had to report for my physical exam at an Army facility in South Boston. The place was filled with young men standing in line for their physicals. Some had doctor's letters <laughs> that they hoped would disqualify them. Others were going to pretend to be gay or mentally ill to get disqualified. I passed the physical and went home to wait for my induction notice to arrive in the mail, telling me exactly when to report for duty. Then, about a week before my induction notice was supposed to arrive, President Nixon ended the draft on January 27, 1973. If Gene McCarthy had not run for president in 1968, the draft would not have ended in 1973. None of the young men I saw at the induction center that day were killed in Vietnam because the political pressure of the anti-war movement forced Nixon to end the draft. Many of the young men I saw at the induction center went on to have children and grandchildren who don't know that they owe their lives to the people who stopped the draft and the war. There are thousands of families living in Vietnam today who wouldn't be there if the war had continued for another year or two or three. The last word about Jean McCarthy should always be that no one did more to stop the killing in Vietnam than Senator Eugene McCarthy. If I have to run for president to do it, I'm going to do it. Senator Eugene McCarthy, August 17, 1967. And we will now take questions. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, let me remind folks, if you're interested in asking a question, come line up on one of these aisles on either side. And actually, as people are lining up, I'm going to jump in with a curator's prerogative question, because I have a question I'm dying to ask you, which is actually about the media in 1968 and, and possibly comparing it a little bit to the media of our most recent presidential election. I have a very romantic idea of the news media in 1968, thinking of great magazine and newspaper journalism and things like the Buckley-Vidal uh, television debates. Um, so my question for you is, 
in thinking about the 1968 election, sort of after this last bloodbath of an election year with so much media criticism at the source of it, do you think the media of 68 compares favorably or disfavorably to the media of 2016? What's the counterfactual where each election's year's media was in each you, other's uh, timeline? You should have given me that question ahead of time. Um, <laughs> no, it's the first, it's a great question. It's the first time I've been asked that question. And I'm off the top of my head, I'm going to say that the media uh, did a better job in 1968. Uh, there was much less noise. Uh, and so there's a lot of great work. You know, the New York Times is still doing the same kind of work uh, that, it, that, that was the best of its work in 1968, but it has to compete with a tremendous amount of noise uh, generated by the expansion of our news sources, including cable news. And so in, uh, in 1968, we, really, we just had the three networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, uh, and their coverage was pretty consistent and pretty accurate of what was going on. And uh, including, by the way, at the Democratic Convention, as you'll see in the book, uh, Mike Wallace, CBS correspondent, getting punched on the floor of the convention. That would have been the single big biggest event of any other convention ever. <laughs> and it was like, it, it was just ignored. Uh, Dan Rather knocked to the floor of the convention uh, by R Richard Daly's uh, security forces inside the hall. Uh, again, I mean, just imagine if any network correspondent had been knocked to the floor or slugged at any one of our conventions last year, uh, it would have been the biggest story of the convention. Uh, but so it was, it was a, a very difficult time uh, for the media, and I think they rose to that occasion much better than uh, our current media rises to almost any occasion. Uh, so where do we go? Back, back and forth, okay? Good segue to my question. Why did the Democratic Convention fall into chaos and not the Republican Convention that, that year? Because the uh, anti-war activists were all planning uh, to have the biggest possible demonstrations they could arrange at the Democratic Convention. Uh, that The plan, when that was made months beforehand, was to go to protest the President of the United States being renominated uh, to continue his war policy. That was the expectation. Uh, many of the protesters who wanted to uh, sharpen the, the, the anti-war divide were actually disappointed when they saw Bobby Kennedy getting into the race and looking like he might be able to get the nomination. Jerry Rubin, uh, one of the leaders of the Yippies, wrote a piece in the Village Voice about uh, how, how terrible this was, <laughs> that Kennedy might actually get the nomination because then all of our fun disappears because he's actually, you know, more than half on our side. Uh, so that's what they expected to go there to protest, and they basically got their version of it because they ended up protesting uh, the nomination of Hubert Humphrey, LBJ's vice president, who appeared to be someone who was going to continue the war policy. Uh, yes, is the uh, documentary Nixon 1968, is that available somewhere to purchase or do you know? I don't have it on me. I you don't, you, I don't. You, we you, have some books uh, for purchase. <laughs> Might even be cheaper than the documentary. I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, sorry, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, everything's online, isn't it? Isn't everything that's ever been filmed, every episode of everything is somewhere online? 
So uh, I'm coming to this really impressive talk um, with all of your knowledge and all of the history that you bring to this. And I'm sorry, I am going to do a little preface here. Um, I, I need a rest, so the longer, <laughs> you go ahead. So I've just come from Washington, D.C. Um, just had an opportunity of being there during Veterans Weekend. Lots of Vietnam vets, lots of vets from other wars, uh, lots of individuals who are really excited about the possibilities of, of, of being a protector for their particular country. And I had the privilege of being and visiting for the very first time the African American, the National African American Museum. And here we are on the first floors at the very bottom, C uh, 3, 2, and 1. And I'm listening to non people of I'm listening to non-people of African descent saying, why don't we know this? Uh, this can't be true. Uh, this isn't the way our country was actually built. And so knowledge is really powerful. How do we finally get within our school district, within our educational process, an opportunity to really hear about history as it was, rather than history from the side of those who conquered this particular land. Do you uh, have a sense of that at all? Well, you know, I, I worked as a public school teacher uh, after college for a few years um, in Boston, and it's a very, it's a difficult, um, it's a really difficult challenge, and, and I would say the best hope you have is actually, and this is not a good systematic answer, but individual teachers opening eyes. I, my first discovery of any alternative to the high school textbook version of America and the elementary school textbook version of America uh, was an alternative, what was then called an alternative history of America, you, you might call it a true history of America, written by Dick Gregory, who was the uh, most prominent uh, and in many, for a long time the only prominent black comedian in America in the early 1960s, who by 1968 is a very uh, busy activist in Chicago in these protests, which is where he was living at the time. And he had joined Martin Luther King in the civil rights movement. And Dick Gregory wrote a book uh, that opened my eyes. And, that, and I didn't get my hands on that book until I was in college. And so uh, I don't have the solution to that. But uh, the more we can personally refer people uh, our own reading lists, uh, that, that's, that's all I know. I thought it was really interesting when you were talking about Nixon, and I always thought of Nixon as tricky dick, just really slimy and whatever, but then you were talking about Nixon's treason, and I keep wondering, because you're such a straight shooter, I listen to your program every night, how come we don't hear that word treason now? Because there seems to be well, lots of reasons to hear it. Well, just, just uh, Lyndon Johnson wasn't a lawyer. Uh, which is an important part of the use of that word. Just going to clear the air on this, and, and we can move on from that particular word. It is, Nixon did not commit uh, treason. Uh, he violated the Logan Act, which is a different thing from treason. Uh, and that is the law that says uh, you cannot negotiate with foreign powers on behalf of the United States. Uh, that's the most that could possibly in, be involved in anything they're investigating now, uh, because treason is an uncommittable crime. It does not exist as a criminal option for you unless 
we are living under a declaration of war. And the only way you can commit treason is to aid and abet the enemy on the other side of that declaration of war, which is why we have not had a treason case in the United States since our last declaration of war, which was World War II. So we can use it as a term of art if we want to. I never do, because it is a legal term. And I know emotionally it feels good to say, and, I, and keep it up, it's fine, you're not, you don't, you have a First Amendment right, uh, but for me, you're never gonna hear me say it. Um, and in the book, I let LBJ say it, but I don't say it myself, and I point out the Logan Act, you know, and uh, so, so that's, you know, that's the, uh, the technical truth of the, of the language. Greetings, welcome to Seattle. My question is, um, well, I'll preface it also with saying that 1968 was a watershed year um, for political and social change and unrest. And um, I think there's a certain myopia with regard to the establishment back there or some of the elder statesmen how do you think that 2017, or 16 and 17, will look in the history books? There's so many parallels to be drawn between 68 and, the, and what I consider this kind of a real watershed period. Yeah, well, I've been really humbled by, by that kind of question by writing this book, because I had all these ideas in 1968 when I was a kid, and, and I held those ideas uh, for decades. Uh, including in incredibly simple things, like uh, Gene McCarthy goes to New Hampshire, and my brother Kevin gets clean for Gene, he shaves his beard, he cuts his hair, that was the phrase, get clean for Gene, and Kevin goes up to New Hampshire and volunteers, and then we're all watching on election night, and Gene McCarthy wins, it was so great, he wins, he beats LBJ in New Hampshire, and because that's what I thought, because that's what the press coverage made you feel and it was literally decades later that I discovered that Gene McCarthy came in second in New Hampshire. <laughs> that that he, got, he just got over 40% of the vote and that was shocking because he was supposed to get 4% of the vote and so the media went with the shock and I'm, you know, a kid in high school, I thought, oh, he won, you know, because that's, and, and so, uh, so it goes from things like that to all sorts of other things that I now know about backstage maneuvering, and, and, and I have uh, more respect, uh, a, a measured, isolated pockets of respect for what LBJ was going through in 1968. Uh, I had none in 1968. And, um, and, and, and Humphrey, I have much more respect for when I understand his history, which I didn't know then. I, I've, I'm gonna be very humble about uh, where we are right now. I think the, the best understanding of it is 30 years away. Well, that's depressing, I think I'll sit down. Yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, come on, you got another 30 years. I won't be here. My kid's gonna have to write that book. I won't be here. So first off, I want to thank you and your colleagues for keeping the president's feet to the fire. Thank That's you. as easy as it looks. Let, let's just be clear, okay? The president wakes up with his feet in fire. We, we don't, we just aim the camera at it. We don't. So I'm, I'm uh, the son of a Marine who served in the South Pacific. And uh, for the last year, I've been 
leading a project for the DOD. And I am astounded at the number of incompetent officers that I have met. So, and, and um, I think there's an enormous opportunity because you kind of allude to Eisenhower's warning to us was right. Mm -hmm. That message should transcend left or right. And from what I see, the military industrial complex is killing everything around it, its own people, everything around it. And um, I would like to ask you what role you think journalists on the right and left can play in really warning the American people of the danger of this because we've long since forgotten. Yeah, I think it's, it's quite a challenge because what I just assumed after Vietnam is, okay, lesson learned, we get it, uh, and we're not going to engage in hopeless war in far-off places where we don't have a strategic interest. And, it you know, and it's arguable whether or not we've done that in the, the Middle East. Uh, there's certainly a clearer claim on a strategic interest there than there ever was in Vietnam. But... One thing that has resurfaced that, that I have to say, if you were around in 68, you, you wouldn't have predicted it, is this newfound uh, either awe for the military or a demand that there be awe for the military. Because the military, the commanders in Vietnam were outright wrong every single day of the war, and they publicly lied repeatedly. Uh, and, and they were caught by the great journalism of that period uh, in their lies. And by the time, you know, you got to 1975 and, you know, the last helicopter uh, out of Saigon, uh, there was a, a you, you couldn't possibly get a reflexive respect for your view by announcing your rank in the military. Uh, that, that wasn't possible. And you know, you now have a White House chief of staff who believes, uh, if you if you have a rank like his, uh, that he is beyond question and that he is deserving of more respect than Wrights Priebus. And I don't see that he's earned that. Um, Let me uh, echo the previous comment. Thank you and your colleagues for giving voice to what many of us feel is an incredible amount of frustration. Uh, second, when you get back to the studio for your next handoff, would you please tell Rachel we love her? Let me, we love her, Seattle, okay. And on a, okay. On a more serious note, let's assume- That's in, a serious note, is, okay? Right? I mean, listen to them. Let's assume in, <laughs> let's assume in 2018, um, we don't have a first-year senator rising to the top of the Democratic Party to seek that nomination. And let's assume that regardless of who the Republicans run, who do you see on the Democratic side that has the most chance, the most opportunity, and is the best person to nominate for that role to take back the White House? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that, and I'll tell you why. I, I, um I'm not good at this, at, at picking who, you know, who should you bet on. I, I have, in the past, only used polls. I just, that's what, that's what political punditry was always supposed to be based on, uh, is that we have polls and they tell us where the standing is, you know, and the polls in, you know, 2015 told us that Hillary Clinton was a pro, not just a favorite, a prohibitive favorite 
among Democrats. She was polling up above 60%, sometimes above 65%. And, you know, Bernie Sanders was polling at 3%. Uh, and so I expected Bernie Sanders to work really hard and, and get out there on the campaign trail and get all the way up there to, you know, like a Dennis Kucinich number, like a six, like double it, would get all the way up to six, you know. So, so I didn't see him, I didn't see that coming, the Bernie Sanders surge. I'm like those guys in the Senate who thought Gene McCarthy was crazy, you know, going to New Hampshire running against Johnson. So I'm never gonna see this uh, before the polls give me some kind of clue. I mean, I could see in 2007 that Barack Obama was going to overtake Hillary Clinton even when, she was, when he was 25 points behind her uh, because you could see in her negative uh, how strong that negative was and you could see her problem was that she was never polling above 50%. And so in order to be prohibitive, you have to be above 50 and usually well above 50. And what I could see with Obama was he had zero negative. There's nothing that's going to hold him back. And so that's the only time where I, you know, predicted something that was not completely obvious to everyone. Otherwise, uh, I, I'm just patient. I'll just wait and see who, who runs. I, I don't know. Thank you and your MSNBC colleagues for presenting what I consider the best, perhaps the only true reality show on TV today. Um, on the other side, I'd, like, I'd love to see a revival of the West Wing. Oh, uh, me too. But well, you know what? Uh, <laughs> Saturday night in Los Angeles, we're having the book party for this book, and it is going to be uh, just about full cast reunion of the West Wing, and <laughs> writers and directors and others. Uh, but the base of the party is going to be my West Wing family. Go, go ahead. Here's my question. Um, 1968 was the first year that I was old enough to vote. So I remember vividly all the things you're talking about. I remember the, the, the atmosphere in which it happened. And I'm somewhat astonished when I hear people say, the country has never been so divided today as it as, ever in its history. So I'd like your opinion. Was the country... Uh, more divided today over what well, we all know what that means, or back then, because I remember the Vietnam War, the draft, everything else. Uh, well, it's a, it's a different kind of division. Um, we have a very we have a very sharp set of divisions now uh, over uh, smaller things, you know, like international trade. Not not a war, not a war in Vietnam with uh, 16,589 killed in one year, 1968. I mean, when I was standing there at Johnny's funeral, we were just one of 16,589 families in America who did that that year. Just for scale, Iraq and Afghanistan combined for the entire 21st century of that warfare, 6,000. 883, less than half of one year of Vietnam War dead. And, and so, you know, the, the, the sharp disagreements now are about uh, smaller issues, but the disagreements are, are much more intense over those, those things. In 1968, you were seeing disagreements of, that were very, very, very painful because there were World War II veterans who were very proud of their service, whose kids were suddenly anti-war. And some of those World War II veterans were outraged by that. 
And others of those World War II veterans were cheering them on and saying, I don't want to see you go over there to that war. I don't want you to do that because I know what war is and this is not one we should be in. And so uh, the, the, the just being anti-war was a brand new position to have in the United States and it was brand new for Gene McCarthy. He voted for the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, as did every single senator except for one, Wayne Morse, who lost his reelection in Oregon because he didn't vote for it. So the, you have just you know three years earlier, every one of these anti-war politicians of 1968 was pro-war. That's how sudden this change was. That's how dramatic it was. People were feeling their way into it, and it was a a rough transition for a lot of people. Um, I was 17 in 72, worked on the McGovern campaign, still have my McGovern Eagles and t-shirt, which I proudly <laughs> trot out to tell an ever-increasing number of people, I have t-shirts older than you. But, <laughs> but um, and I would not normally go to the what if corner, but because you did in this line, I want to throw up an opposite hypothetical, which was, would be if Bobby Kennedy had not run in 72 and lived, in 68 and lived, and would have been the anti-war candidate in 72 with a party machine that didn't hate him, right. with a mainline party right. that worshipped him, could he have ended the war in less than three years? Oh, sure. I, I think... Uh Having studied it now, Bobby was, I understand why they were all afraid of him. Bobby could have won in 68, for sure. Uh, he could have taken on Nixon uh, as uh, an incumbent president in 72, and I'm sure he would have done uh, better than McGovern did, simply because McGovern was two things. He was an unknown. America didn't really know who he was, but the one thing they did know is this is the most liberal presidential candidate in the history of major party nominations, and that remains true. We have never had a more liberal nominee than George McGovern in 1972. And by 1972, the Nixon side of the world had made liberal a dirty word, had made liberal a word that could condemn you to something below 50% of the vote, and so you needed something that could transcend that, something that could come back. Uh, and, and, and Bobby Kennedy was the only one who had uh, both a, a real counterpunch to that, and then he had this other thing, uh, the other thing going for him, which was that Kennedy mystique and that romanticism around uh, restoring that Kennedy presidency. Uh, you had mentioned earlier how, uh, how f there used to exist such a thing as a liberal Republican. Uh, what can be done to bring the American political uh, landscape back to center, let alone to even the left? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I could pretend. I, I don't know. First off, I want to thank you for being so consistently clever. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Secondly, um, Seattle created a thing in stadiums that's horrible, the wave, many years ago. And <laughs> oh, you're the ones. We're oh. the ones. We, oh, we acknowledge our mistakes. Um, ever since Virginia, I keep thinking about the wave in a more positive national way. 
And one of the questions I have is when they go low, we go high. And I'm wondering how we encourage the wave, and I'm not sure how to handle Hillary's old line. Um, when they go low, we go high. Yeah. Can we get a wave by going high? Michelle Obama. Okay, I think I got it. I think, uh, listen, I, look, it's, it's a simple, uh, it's a simpler uh, game, if you want to call politics and elective politics that. It's a simpler game. Then the game is you should simply um, be true to yourself. And I know how cliche that sounds, but I've seen it uh, a couple of times. And uh, for example, Bernie Sanders, who uh, I was never impressed with as a senator. I'd never saw him do anything that mattered that was uh, particularly effective in any way. I have a bias about how the, the way I watch the Senate because I used to run committees, so I care about the inside game where the door is closed, and Bernie was pretty much never in those rooms, and partially because he's not really in the Democratic Party. So I, I say all that just to say I had a zero expectation of Bernie Sanders as a presidential candidate for a variety of reasons, including my own scorecard that I have in my head for senators and the way they do their jobs there. Now, it turns out the way you do your job as a senator is 100% irrelevant to being a presidential candidate. It has nothing to do with it. Bob Dole was great at his job as a senator, as a Republican senator, as a Republican majority leader, minority leader, in the Senate, no one better at the inside game with the door closed, a terrible presidential candidate. So Bernie Sanders taught me something. I was watching this, and I was watching him go from 3% and go like this and go like this and go like this. Um, and Bernie and I are the only two people in America who accept the label socialist, uh, actually embrace it. Um, and, and, and so, uh, you know, because all modern economies are mixed economies. They are mixes, China is too, mixes of capitalism and socialism. And all you're doing is playing with the dials. <clears throat> and, you know, Sweden has more socialism than we do. Uh, you know, China has more socialism than Sweden does and so forth. But we all have socialism. We all have capitalism. If someone's going to call themselves a capitalist, then I'm sorry. I have to call myself a socialist. I'll just, I'll just side with that section of our economy. But anyway... So I'm watching Bernie run, and I'm watching him go up. And, I'm, and, and you know, any strategist would say, what are you going to do about that word socialist? How are you going to get rid of that? Bernie never attempted to get rid of that. He never attempted to get rid of it. And oh, you'd watch all these people on CNN and these, get them on, and you're, you're a socialist, like it, like it was a crime. You know, and he would just sit there very calmly and answer the question. And Bernie's numbers went up, went up, went up, went up, went up. And when you look at polling, the worst words you can have associated with your name in America are atheist, Muslim, and socialist. Those are the worst words you can have near your name. And so Bernie is embracing one of the worst words, and his poll numbers are going up among people who do not think that they are socialists. And what I believe I was seeing there was people thinking, well, he must be honest. Because who would ever admit? To, <laughs> he must be honest. And, and it made me realize that this is what I used to see with Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan in upstate New York. And, and you know, almost all of upstate New York is Republican. Uh, and 
little with pockets of Democrats in the cities, Buffalo, Albany, and uh, and and so uh, we'd be up there in these small towns and these uh, counties that no one else would bother to go to. And Senator Moynihan would end up winning, uh, you know, 63 out of 64 counties in, in New York State, more than FDR ever did, more than Bobby Kennedy ever did. And this was in the time when the, a typical question would be, uh, why are you uh, trying, why are you voting for more funding for AIDS research? My wife has breast cancer and we should be doing more for, you know, that would be the typical question. And you would have um, something close to zero sympathy in this audience for AIDS research. And this is, you know, in the 19, 1990, 1988, uh, 1992. And, um, and he would go into this Harvard professor's kind of lecture, since he was a Harvard professor, about science and discovery and the things we've discovered while we were looking for something else and how dynamic science can be. And, but what, and, and, and he would never back off from, from uh, his support for, for funding for AIDS research. And he would tell people about uh, HIV and he would tell people what it does to the body and he would tell people uh, how, uh, of the, the uh, about the different kinds of uh, people that we would see when we would go into New York hospitals, uh, the sender and I. And, uh, and so here's what I'd hear. I'd be in the back and they'd be walking out. And you'd hear this thing and it would be kind of a grumble. It would kind of be in the tone of a complaint. Uh, but it would be, well, he's really smart and uh, he's really honest. And that was it and they're gone. And then you know, on election night, he would win that county, Republican county. He would win that county because he was smart and honest, not because they agreed with him. And so uh, this is a hard thing to duplicate, and it's the most dangerous possible, you know, approach a politician can take. But I, I actually think, and, and I know exactly how naive it sounds, that the, the, the thing you should do in politics, in reaction to anything, is the thing that, that is in your heart and the thing that you want us to see about you. And that, I would submit, is what was going through Barack Obama's mind every day of his political career when he was facing <laughs> unprecedented kinds of challenges and insults and attacks. You never saw, you never saw that man do anything that if you were his child, you would not be proud of for the rest of your life. Never once. I didn't want to see him go low. I didn't want to see him try some sort of performed uh, response that would be a calculation to pick up votes. I just wanted to see if these people say this about you, what do I see when you speak? And I might see him completely ignore it or I might see him make a joke about it, or I might see him go to some higher level of the discussion. Uh, but what I always saw, I believed, because I don't know him, but what I always thought I was seeing was a man who was choosing to, in this very moment, and in everything he does, always be proud of himself first. 
and deal with that first. And if you don't like it, you get to vote any way you want. That's what I believe I was watching him do. And so whenever I hear this stuff about, well, you know, if they're going to behave this way, we should behave this way, uh, it's, it's just not something that I could engage with, especially if it's false, if it's a false kind of behavior for the person we're suggesting it to. Um, and I just want to jump in. We're running low on time. Apologies to the folks in line, but this will be the last question here. Um, and a reminder to folks what we're going to do right after the event is over. If you would like to get your book signed, you can pick it up at the Elliott Bay table in the corner there. Please exit over on the north side of the room if you're not getting something signed over here. And uh, our last question is up. Hi, uh, my name is Ariana Dennis. Um, as a student interested in journalism, I was interested in knowing what direction you think journalism is going during a time where what's considered fact is so highly debated with fake news. And um, I was just interested in knowing, like, how can journalism regain its credibility? Um, well, you know, I I don't trust journalism. I, I don't think people should trust anything. I think you have to get your own education in the world. Uh, in every way that you possibly can, and then bring that to uh, whatever journalism you're consuming. And so, uh, you know, there, I have, my knowledge of the world is mostly ignorance. I know nothing about the natural sciences, for example. Uh, I know very little about literature. I know, you know, smatterings of history. Uh, I know nothing about mathematics. And so, uh, so this whole, these arenas are, are completely lost to me. Uh, but I, I know a lot about government, having worked in government. And so whenever I'm reading um, journalistic coverage of, of things that I uh, know more about than, than, the, than is evident in that piece of journalism, I feel okay about that. I, I feel like you know this. This is their best. This is this is their best understanding of, of what this is, uh, and you you know you can't ask for much more than that. But I got to tell you, I have to warn you off of uh, of uh, political journalism, but most especially, and this is a different thing, uh, journalism about government. Uh, you know, the journalism about political campaigns is something that is pretty simple. You know, it's, it's your Romney's running against so-and-so, and here's what the polls say in New Hampshire, and eventually you have a result, and you discover, okay, so Romney was stronger than the other guy in New Hampshire, and you get these provable results, you know, uh, from, from these primary elections and different things. Uh, so, it, it, and also, you can get people on campaigns to tell you their version of what happened in the back room. You should never believe it, ever, <laughs> ever because everybody in that room has an incentive to tell a story that makes that person the hero. I mean, I've been in those things. I was in, uh, when I was working in the Senate, I had that rite of passage that uh, I was lucky to have where Bob Woodward wanted to talk to me about the latest book he's writing about, in this case, Bill Clinton's first year as president. And what I like about what Bob Woodward does is he actually says something at the beginning of all his books, which everyone ignores. He says, this is the best available version of the truth doesn't say it's the truth. He acknowledges that there are other versions that are unavailable because of the people in the cabinet room that day who refused to speak to him. Uh, they have a different version. And so, you know, he, he would ask me about these meetings that I was in in the Oval Office and in the cabinet room and in the majority leader's office. And, you know, sometimes there were four of us in that room. Sometimes there were 10 of us. 
Uh, and if there were 10 in the room, Bob would usually get to talk to about six of them. Each one of us tells a different story in which we, or in my case, Senator Moynihan is the hero. Uh, in my case, I'm telling it honestly, but I am tilting it as much as I possibly can <laughs> in, that, in that direction. Um, uh, and, so, and so at a certain point, the journalist has to choose. That's what they do. They just choose. You know, when they've got four different people telling them what was said inside a room, they just choose a version. And I've, been in, I've lived inside enough of those stories that when I read the journalist's choice, you know, they're never, never, never more than 50% right. And so the way this coverage works, if you're to compare it to the finest journalism we have in America, the very, very, very finest reporting we have in America is and always has been, as we all know, sports. <laughs> because the Yankees really did score seven runs last night, and the other guys scored five. It's absolutely true. That's what happened. I can tell you exactly how many pitches were thrown, exactly how many foul balls, any fact you want sports journalism has. Here's how journalism, especially when covering government, and government happens behind closed doors. It doesn't happen on the Senate floor. It happens in the Finance Committee conference room with the door closed. It happens in the Majority Leader's office with the door closed, the, the Speaker's office with the door closed, the Cabinet room, the Oval Office, door's always closed. It, door is always closed when governing is really happening, always. And so when you understand that part, understand that when you read journalistic coverage of government, it is as if we have the Super Bowl, we schedule it for that Sunday, and, and a couple of weeks before, we start having press conferences and the players start boasting about what they're gonna do, and they're making speeches, I'm gonna you know, throw 10 touchdown passes, and I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna do that. And then, when it's time to have the game, we don't let anyone in the stadium except the players. Not a single reporter, not a single camera, not a single fan, no one's allowed in there, and you find out who won the Super Bowl by interviewing the players when they walk out. Good luck. Um, you know, I intercepted 10 times, I threw, you know, that's the coverage you're reading. It is guesswork, it is. It is, uh, but as Bob says, as Bob Woodward says, when it's done well, and Bob does it very well, when it's done studiously and when you work really, really hard, that account is the best available version of the truth of what happened. But don't ever, ever, ever mistake that with the truth. And I just, the, the way you can understand the difference, if, it, if it's still not at all clear, um, if you've got a situation um, with someone really important to you, a spouse, and he's just unaccounted for for hours on end, uh, night after night, do you want the truth or the best available version of the truth? Thank you. Lawrence O'Donnell, playing with fire. Thank you so much. Thank you all very much for being here. 
Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Lawrence O'Donnell hosts MSNBC's The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell. His new book is Playing with Fire, the 1968 election and the transformation of American politics. He spoke at Seattle University's Campion Ballroom on November 14th. Town Hall Seattle presented the event as part of their Civic Series. You can hear the full event on our website, kuow.org slash speakersforum. Tune in again soon.